In New York, like many American cities, mom-and-pop shops are slowly disappearing. Owners who can no longer afford their rent abruptly fold, retire with no one in the family interested in taking over the business, or simply decide it's not worth competing against the big box store that opened up down the street. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, The Disappearing Face of New York. We'll talk with a husband and wife photography team who've made it their mission to document generations-old storefronts before the shops vanish forever. We'll also pay a visit to some New York City establishments that have somehow managed to buck the trend and stand the test of time, like J.J. Hat Center in Manhattan billed as the oldest hat shop in all of New York City. It's located at 310 Fifth Avenue. When I stepped through their front door, it was like taking a step back in time. My name is Mark Williamson, the manager at JJ Hat Center. Now, Mark, this place has been around for 100 years, is that right? Yep, that is right, continuously doing business since 1911. How do you think business has changed since 1911? Dramatically. Um, I mean, in those days and times, there were thousands of hat shops in the United States. I mean, in New York City, you probably find one on every block. Um, But since the 60s to the 70s, you know, the whole hat thing phased out for a bunch of reasons. But, um, I mean, it's making a slight resurgence now. I don't ever think it will get back to the days where every man wore a hat. But you are getting a lot of younger guys interested in hats, which in turn makes the older guy who used to wear them come in and try on a hat as well. Yeah, there was a time when it was considered improper for a man to leave his house without a hat on. Why do you think that changed? What are among the top reasons? Uh, I mean, a lot of people will say that uh, John F. Kennedy didn't wear a hat to his inauguration, but I mean, I don't really think that's true. I think it had to do with the changing of the times. I think, uh, you know, was the uh, flower power age, so guys growing their hair long, mustaches, beards. uh, People were trying to be anti-establishment, and I think establishment was wearing a hat, tie, and a suit. Um, Some people say cars got more aerodynamic. We could say that barbers got better at their craft and people wanted to show off their hair more. But I think, I mean, those factors, and I'm sure probably others, played a part in it. Definitely not just the whole JFK myth. The hats here are not your baseball hats. There are no logos on these hats. Tell me about the hats that you have here at the shop. Uh, Yeah, well, we uh, sell classic men's hats, uh, fedoras, uh, which are dress hats, uh, small brims, wide brims. Uh, We sell pork pie hats, which are the uh, flat top hats uh, favored by jazz musicians, uh, also made famous by Popeye Doyle, French Connection. Uh, We sell French berets, we sell Greek fishermen's caps, we sell newsboy caps, driving caps. So just basically the classic men's hat, uh, that's what we try to uh, indulge in. How many hats do you stock here at any given time? Mm, 15,000, 20,000. Wow, that's a lot of hats. Yes, it is. Where are the hats manufactured these days? Uh, We have hats manufactured all over the world. We have some in the States. Uh, We have hats manufactured in Italy, um, Canada, Colombia, um, Czech Republic. uh, And like I said, the berets are from France. Fisherman caps are from Greece. Uh, We have uh, Panama straws made in Ecuador. So, I mean, all over the place. What's the cheapest hat you have in stock? Would be... Uh, about a straw hat that's about $55, uh, 
fedora, the same about 55 caps. The cheapest one is going to be about 30, 35 dollars. Now take me to the other end, to the most expensive hats. Uh, the most expensive ones are going to range like 350 to 600 to uh, 1200 dollars for a Monte Cristi uh, Fino Panama straw hat. That's like the finest Panama hat woven very tightly in Ecuador. Um, with the caps, the most expensive, I mean, you can get to about 225 for a pure cashmere cap from Italy. What kind of hat do you have on your head right now? Um, I have on like a small brim fedora right now, classic men's hat. How do you know what hat is right for you? You're looking at me right now. What hat would you say is right for a guy like me? Um, well, there would be a few. Um, I don't think every guy can wear every style of hat, but there's definitely more than one style for any man. So, I mean, when a customer comes in, we size them up uh, by their look, their face, the shape of it, and then we just dive right in. How many times has JJ Hat Center changed hands in the last 100 years, do you know? Uh, not exactly. I mean, maybe six times. Maybe, approximately. Don't know for sure. A lot of stores in New York City come and go. They come and go all the time. Why do you think it is that JJ Hat Center has remained here for 100 years? We're fortunate, plain and simple, because business is a tough thing. Small business is a tough thing. We're, we're just fortunate, I mean, plain and simple. Have you seen any vintage photos? Do you get the sense that the front of the store has remained largely unchanged? Oh, yeah, it has, uh, because you can look on the um, IBM archive website and see the front of the store. I mean, the size where the door was has changed, but the, everything else, you can look in that picture and see the staircase and everything is pretty much unchanged here. Mark Williamson is the manager of J.J. Hat Center in Manhattan, billed as New York's oldest hat shop. You can see photos of the place on our Facebook page. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. Stores like J.J. Hat Center are slowly vanishing in New York. Mom and pop shops often find it hard to survive in the face of high rents and competition from big box retailers. James and Carla Murray are a husband and wife photography team who have been documenting classic storefronts in New York City for the past several years. Many of their photographs appear in their book, Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York. Carla, good morning. Welcome to Cityscape. Good morning. Thanks so much for having us. James, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you. You write in the introduction of the book that the story of New York City storefronts is one that had to be told. Why do you feel that way? Well, we noticed that these small mom-and-pop stores were disappearing, and when they did disappear from a certain neighborhood, we felt like the neighborhood was losing part of its character and its flavor, and it just simply wasn't the same without these little stores. So we started documenting them because, you know, we felt it was telling a story of, of New York. And once we um, we were initially drawn to the aesthetics, obviously the appeal of the the old signage and in, in, in the store itself, and then once we went in and started to actually interview the owners, that's when we really knew it was a story that had to be told. Did you find that the owners shared a common story? Oftentimes, as far as the reason for maybe their imminent closure or why in in the foreseeable future they, that they might not be around, it was there was like two main reasons. The worst one was that, A, they didn't own the building, and the price of real estate had gone up so much that the landlords were increasing in their rent, sometimes doubling, tripling, quadrupling, you know, ridiculous amounts that these small little stores that have, um, you know, they, they don't make a big profit margin, that they really just couldn't afford to stay in business. So that was, that was the one common thread. And the other one was 
that sometimes it was the owners, like it might have been a generational family store passed from generation to generation, but then the latest generation, whoever was you know working there now, they worked so hard to make a good living and make a better life for their children. It was like the immigrant story, really, that they didn't really want their children to even take over the business. They wanted them to get you know sometimes an education or you know further themselves, so they didn't have to be working like ninety, a hundred hours a week because literally that's how long some of these people are at their stores, you know, to earn a living. What surprised you most in doing this? Oh, just the um, the tremendous amount of pressure on these guys to just keep their doors open. Um, things you would never even imagine um, they describe to us on what they face every day in order to run a small family-owned business. The oldest uh, one we have is a Woolens business that uh, is on the Lower East Side. Right, and it had, it had um, originated in South Africa like I forget what it was, like 1500 A.D. or something. You know, it was, it was so ridiculous. Like how long the the business went back for? We were like, how could that possibly be? But it was, you know, yeah, a true he had family all the history. all the all the proof and everything. And that that's what was neat when we went in to interview. A lot of times they welcomed us like into their home, and um, we would end up spending like hours there, like six eight hours. We would eat what they were what they were selling, or we would we would look at pictures of their grandkids. Um, it, it was really something else. Even our, in our own neighborhood, we would just go in and we might say hi and we might know the owner's name, like his first name or, or her first name or something like that and, and say hi. But then you would just get what you needed to get and you would leave. You Which would, neighborhood is that? We we live in the East Village and we, we've lived there for over close to 25 years now. How drastically have the storefronts oh. changed there? I mean, <laughs> that yeah, that's a story within itself. But it's funny because... It's really the change in our own neighborhood is not what prompted us to start documenting the stores. Because to us, I guess it's a case where if you see something every day, it doesn't really hit you. You know, I mean, you see that things are closing, but you're just like, okay, you know, what, what that's New York and everything's changing. So we didn't, we were witnessing, of course, firsthand the, the change in the East Village and, you know, it's um, drastic changes. I mean, when we first moved into where we live now, I mean, there was big, big drug problems. I mean, you know, prostitutes sleeping in the stairwell. You know, if you woke up early in the morning to, to go to work, you know, you would uh, have to step over people. And, you know, it's certainly not that way anymore. But it's a dramatic change. But it really, like I said, going back to the initial point, it wasn't our own neighborhood that prompted us to start documenting. It was because we were going to the outer boroughs to these offbeat places that we probably would never have gone to if it, um, it hadn't been for another project that we were working on the time, which was documenting graffiti art. You have to love a store that advertises everything from cold cuts to school supplies, and I'm talking about C&N Everything Store oh. in the Bronx. Does that store still exist? No. I knew exactly. When you said sells everything, I knew exactly, and I'm sure Jim did the same, knew exactly what store you were <laughs> referencing to because that was one of our favorite, favorite, favorite places. And it was a husband and wife um, that that run it, and the, the husband had passed away, um, and it was um, Miss Seward. And she was amazing. You would go into the store and literally you would have to like turn yourself sideways to like squeeze yourself in between all these products hanging from hooks in the ceiling and like everywhere. I mean, every possible inch was taken up. And she literally had everything. When we were in there, some guy came in and he's like, I would like a um, nine inch frying pan and um, a wire splitter. 
and she's like, just give me a second. And she like shuffled herself and she went <laughs> she to a drawer. She had a stick with like a hanger on the end to like reach stuff. And um, stuff was like in the back. There was all old ovens piled up one on top of each other. And she would open the doors of the oven and there would be like boxes and boxes of like plumbing fixtures. And then she'd open up another oven and it would be like lawnmower parts. And it, and it, it was just next to... Um, uh, shower curtains, you know, yeah, and it, then cold cuts in the refrigerator <laughs> that she yeah, would sell, yeah, and yeah, milk, and right. a newspaper. So it, it was it was truly an amazing store, and there was always people hanging outside. And when we had interviewed her, it was sad because she said she owned the building. Right, she owned the building, so that's not the reason why why she had to close. And actually, when we went in there once, it was like her anniversary, and she even like like fifty years, and she had given us like a little sticker that she had made up, a little gold sticker. Yeah, and she had this really um, cute. big light up lucite trophy um, that the community had given her. So that was really sad. That was a sad one. But I mean, it was the same story. You know, she, she was older, and I guess you know it was just time for her to retire. It sounds like you two are documenting what happens to these stores as the years go on. You're keeping track on whether they stay open or closed. We do because we kind of became friends in a way. You know, if you want to, you know, call it that, with a lot of the owners. I mean, we became close to them because. We were interested in, you know, their history and their ongoing plight. So we keep tabs on them and we'll see if, you know, if they're still around. And if we're in the neighborhood, we go visit. How many would you estimate have closed since you started this project? Well, in the foreword of the book, which was written in 2008, because we, you know, we wrote it even way before it had come out, it was over like close to a third of the stores had already closed that were um, photographed in the book. And now it's over a half. You know, the real estate boom... And then even the bust, like, it didn't help things either. Uh, all those have, have prompted even, you know, it's like a race against time to capture them, basically. Please, please tell me that Eddie's Sweet Shop in Queens is still around, because after reading about it in your book, I want to go. Definitely. That you can still visit. No problem there in, in Forest Hills. It's like a time machine. If you go in there, I mean, they have, like, the old counter and... and there's, it's just a sweet, sweet place. It's it's really like a step in time. It's all like wooden counters and everything like that, and they home. It's all homemade. Another storefront that you captured in your book that left quite an impression on me is Joe's Dairy in Manhattan's Little Italy. It's a place so frozen in time. Definitely, and they make you know their mozzarella fresh every morning. I mean, they ha- the the owner has to get up really, really, really early in the morning to start the process. It's a lengthy process to make the the fresh mozzarella. You wouldn't even think that kind of thing still took place in New York City. It's amazing. Exactly. He said the key to the the mozzarella tasting the way it does is the New York water. That, you know, that's something in the New York water that imparts a special taste and it just makes it easy to work with and there's nothing else like it. That He said even members of his own family that know how he makes it like, they moved down to Florida, and they've tried, and they can't. They we hear the ship. same thing about bagels and pizza, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> pizza, yep. The cover of your book features a place called Ralph's, Ralph's Discount Store. Is Ralph's still around? No, that's been gone a while. In fact, that had already closed um, before the book was, was published. And the demise of that particular store was because they were going to make condos. The owner didn't own the the building. The building was sold, and you know he was forced to leave. 
And I mean, I think they're still working on it today. I don't, I don't think the condos are completed yet. As, right. As far as I can remember, the last time we were um, downtown. The last time we saw it, it was uh, like an empty construction site. Why did you choose Ralph's for the front of the book? To be honest, it was that S. We, we love that, that S, the font. And um, we have people email us from all over the, all over the globe, literally, who are like uh, typography fetishists and font people. And, and they said that that one just threw all the rules out the window. Yeah, it doesn't even and, look like an S. It looks like, I don't know, a heart? Yes. In fact, that's what somebody yeah. told us, that it looks like an Elsa Peretti heart. Yeah. Yeah, like a jewelry uh, Right. For she, like she designs for Tiffany's. And so, <laughs> yeah, we, we just really, really love the sign. And we like that the customer that happens to be in front of it is holding one of the blue bags. Mm-hmm. That if you had shopped there, if you know that store... That's what they would put all your, um, you know, whatever you bought would go in this ubiquitous Yeah, the sidewalk bag. Would, be, we, would be littered with people with those uh, blue bags, the iconic blue bag of Ralph's. The sign for Ralph's advertises that it's been around since 1963. A lot of store signs for the older stores tout how long they've been around. Oh, sure. That's, co- that's the pride coming through, which is something that we were, we were really struck with. The amount of pride in what they do. And in their business, it's just it's just it's just huge, right? And the and in the in the case of generational businesses, that it was passed down from generation to generation. You know, they they are proud of that fact, and they're proud that they're still there. And despite all the obstacles that they're faced with, they're still surviving. Do you think that we'll see store signs that say since 2011, 50 years from now? Uh, I hope so, because we still see that, like, yeah, new sure. businesses open up. There's a bar that's nearby where we live, and it's, you know, it yeah. says oh, since 2009, so that's, you know, <laughs> well, okay, now it's almost two years, but they were proud to put the date that they started. So I think it's, you know, something that a small business, if they can carry on, they'll always be proud of when they when they began. You capture a lot of neon in storefronts in this book. Is neon something that the city even still allows? Because I don't see a lot of neon in new storefronts. Right. Neon requires a special permit from New York City. And it's a special illuminated sign permit that you have to get. And neon in particular is only zoned for allowing in certain locations now. If your store already had neon, then you'll be grandfathered in. Like they can't ask you to take down what's already there. Well, in some cases they can, so I can't, you know, I can't even say that rule is 100%. Probably the most interesting story with that would be Brands Liquors. Right. Um, On 145th Street in Harlem, they had amazing, amazing marquee neon sign. And this owner actually fought the city. He kept receiving, because it overhung. It was like a marquee sign. And that's why he bought the store, actually. He loved the sign so much. And the city wanted him to take it down because, according to statutes now, it overhangs the sidewalk too far. And he actually fought the city and racked up $50,000 worth of fines. Wow. We even went back and interviewed him when, after it was gone. And he was so sad. He's like, oh, this is, to me, it's like a harbinger of like the change of the neighborhood. Yeah, it's the end of my neighborhood. Yeah, he's like, that's it. Harlem's gone now. He, you know, this is every, they want everything, this homogenous look. And, you know, there is a lot of pressure, even from, like, small business improvement districts and things like that, that they don't want the owner to keep their old sign. The owner might want to, but, you know, the neighborhood or the community or the city in this case, they don't want them to have the old sign, which to us is tragic because that's what attracted us to the business in the first place. The book is Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York. Carla, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. James, thank you. Thanks for having us. 
James and Carla Murray are New York City-based photographers. Their book, Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York, is published by Ginkgo Press. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're focusing our attention on New York City shops that don't have Dwayne, Duncan, or Mart in their names. Generations-old stores, like New York Central Art Supply in Manhattan's East Village. It's been around for more than 100 years. Cityscape's Andrea McCreary talked with current owner Steven Steinberg. So how long has this store been around? Since 1905, my grandfather founded the store in 1905. came from Russia. And after he turned the store over to my father, my father turned the store over to me. And I've been running the store since, I guess, 1950s. And it goes on and on. So did you always want to take over the store? Well, I guess I did. I didn't, I didn't know it at first, but then I, it just, it just, when my father retired, it was a natural thing for me to take since I've been involved in the business for so many years. How old were you when you started uh, doing things here? Fourteen. Oh, wow. What did you do? Oh, I was filled in the stock, straightened the things out, waiting on customers. And I did the same kind of stuff my father did, except I did a little different, a little more flair. What kind of flair? Well, I found products that my father never knew about and artists loved. And New York Central has always been a, a major source for artists. What kind of stuff do you sell here? We sell canvas. We sell paint. We sell brushes, we sell easels, we sell paper. We're known around the world, and I really mean around the world, having the most incredible inventory of fine handmade paper. That's one of the major, major things that New York Central is known for. So are you an artist yourself? God, no. I'm not an artist. I just, I just find things that artists need and want. In many cases, they never knew they wanted it. And what about your grandfather or your father? Were they artists? No, none of them were artists. They just supplied art supplies. That was the extent. I never painted either, but I have been a major supplier to artists, and people know us the world over. It's shocking to, to discover how many people actually know, know of our existence, but it's true. So what kind of artists come to your shop? Well, the world's most famous artists. I mean, they, I have a list of artists living and not living. The work is, is in every major museum in the world. And that makes me feel very proud and very glad that I'm, I've done this and, and it's, we did a, a darn good job. Artists like Tom Wesselman, Andy Warhol, the Kooning. I mean, the major, major majors have all been New York Central customers. And have you met them yourself? Yes, I have. I'm a, I'm a bit of a collector myself, so I have a I have a lot of artist materials, artist materials. I have a lot of paintings that that I've obtained over the years. So, what kinds uh, of things did they buy from you? Cotton canvas, linen canvas, paint of all kinds of descriptions. It, it's there's an, no end of materials that artists need, and that's what New York Central is all about: supplying the the, the needs of artists. So many businesses in New York have come and gone, and your store has been around for more than 100 years. It's truly stood the test of time. So why do you think that is? Maybe a little lucky at times. We're having problems right now. 
trying to, to keep in business. We had to work very much harder than I've ever had to work before to keep this to, to store going. And why do you think that uh, is? The economics of, 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 of where we are today makes it very difficult to stay in business. And, and it's a struggle. I never thought I'd ever say it, but it is a struggle to stay in business. What's a favorite memory you have in this shop? One of my most exciting moments was the day I was asked by Lisa de Kooning, Bill de Kooning's daughter, to bring out to West Hampton, to East Hampton, where they lived, to bring bring out something for, for the house that they needed. When I when I when I gave it to them, Lisa de Kooning said, "Steve, it's Teddy Steve's birthday. This is in this December eighth, about fifteen years ago." He went to he went to his tabaret. Tabaret is a device for drawers. He took out a, 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 a drawing, wrote on the drawing, "Happy B Day, Love Bill." That was a pretty exciting moment. I was shaking like a leap. I mean, one of the great artists, famous artists in the world, just handed me a, a drawing. What makes this supply shop different from others? My staff, I have a very, very good crew working for me. They, they, they're able to wait on customers very diligently. And that's what makes the store the store. The staff, me, the, the whole crew, and of course the, the people know that whatever they want, they will find it here. All right, well, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Cityscape's Andrea McCreary talking with Steven Steinberg, the owner of the more than century-old New York Central Art Supply Shop in Manhattan's East Village. A short walk from that shop was a bakery that's been satisfying the neighborhood's sweet tooth for a hundred-plus years. Cityscape's Morlene Chin gives us an inside view. One of New York's oldest pastry shops is not located in Little Italy, where you might expect an old Italian bakery to be, but in Manhattan's East Village. Venero's was founded in 1894 as a pool hall and cafe with seating for only four people. Today, Venero's has over a hundred seats and five showcases full with cannolis, cheesecake, and rainbow cookies galore. Some of the staples, the cannoli, the cassata al forno, the cheesecake, the sfogliatella, the classics are still classics. They don't change. Steve Zarilli is the vice president of Venero's, which was first opened by his great uncle, Antonio Venero. Zarilli started working at the pastry shop as a teen and says it was bustling in the 70s. It just took off at night. I mean, that was the time in the 70s. Ooh la la, cafe au lait. It was like really hot to have espresso in New York. I'm talking about the real Americans coming in and they would be like at night, go to a show and come downtown and like, you've got to have these amazing pastries. And, and the place was packed at night. I mean packed. I remember working as a teenager at the espresso bar and it was nonstop. I mean, it was like... You really had to work it. Till this day, Veneros has a dedicated fan base. Peter Frankel of Long Island says he stops in every time he's in the neighborhood. I just drove by one day because it's a side street. I have a customer down a block. I said, hmm, bakery, but it really wasn't a bakery. It was a whole different world. Yeah, yeah. So I stopped and tried something one time, and that's it. They got me. He's a lifer. I'm hooked. I'm hooked. Zerilli says the bakers start baking at 6 a.m. every morning. He gave me a full tour of Venero's, where I got to see all the work that goes in behind the pastries. All right, let's, let's go to the bake let's shop. Go to the original bake shop downstairs, okay? We're gonna go to both bake shops. So let's just cover this our ground. Okay. Uh, we have uh, our mixers. In fact, that mixer in the background behind them is a 200-quart mixer. So <laughs> I have a mini version of that. You have that. a mini one, right? Yeah, the little uh, KitchenAid probably. 
So I've been coming here again as a kid. I'm 48 years old and that machine is still there. So it's amazing when you see some of this stuff. The aroma in the bake shop is pungent, but in a good way. The smell of eggs and butter permeates the air as gallons of custard are stirred into giant mixers. Bakers deftly knead dough and cut huge blocks of butter, which are still weighed on old-fashioned scales. A lot of bakers want to use digital scales, but we still use the old weights, you know? Kind of give it one of those. When Veneros was built, ovens in the basement were the norm, and they're still the norm here. Zarelli says longevity in business has its benefits. You're not allowed to do it currently, but if you're grandfathered in, you can still bake and do your business below. Even if I had my, my ovens, I mean, you cannot put an oven in a building today in New York City with the fire code laws and everything. But we're grandfathered in, which is a great thing. The bake shop in the basement has been around for over 100 years. But Veneros built a second bake shop upstairs with their main baker, Angelo Santa Maria, in mind. Angelo's preparing, I think, some molds. Well, I've been doing this for about 36, 37 years. Favorite part of the job? Going home. No. <laughs> That's funny. I like to create. He does. I enjoy creating. He's added a lot of new, new products. Come up with new ideas. You make new items, and uh, it's creativity I enjoy. Angela's creations sit inside what's really calls the refrigerator room. See all the red velvet cupcakes? That's all new. Angela introduced all these new products. The tricolored mousse, three, this is flourless nabachi, which is a flourless cake. And we're not walking in there because it's so cold. Oh, why not? Let's walk in. Come on. You're daring. <laughs> Don't worry about the door shutting behind you. Oh, no, we're locked in the we're refrigerator. <laughs> This could be someone's dream, believe me. Veneros would indeed be a sugar lover's dream, and Zarelli says he hopes his kids will keep the business around to serve sugar lovers for years to come. For Cityscape, I'm Morlene Chen. Watch your step. Morlene paid a visit to Veneros with microphone and camera in hand. You can check out her photos on our Facebook page. Again, we're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can find past editions of the show at WFUV.org slash Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrew McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend.